This is the Seafair Investor Podcast, bringing you the tides of investing and personal finance from to millennial seafarers and alike. I am your host, Soshin, a full-time seafarer, value investor, and a personal finance enthusiast. Welcome to episode 22. On this episode, I will be having a special guest that is really instrumental in my journey in investing when I was just starting before. And that guest for today is Andrew Sater, host of the Investing for Beginners podcast. His podcast is one of the few that I started listening to and really learned a lot, especially on keeping me from doing most of the beginners' mistakes before. (laughs) Well, I still did some, but avoided a lot thanks to their podcast. And because of that, I'm really ecstatic into having him on the show as it's not often you get to talk to the very person you are listening to. So it's, it's like, Talking to your favorite singer, perhaps. (laughs) We talk a lot about so many things regarding investing like his favorite books, his investing frameworks, biases, and we also talk a bit on personal finance and how he handles his own money. Now, before I start spoiling what's ahead, (laughs) let's go to my conversation with Ando Sater, host of the Investing for Beginners podcast. Andrew Sater, welcome to the Seafer Investor Podcast. Hey, thanks for having me. Um, I really appreciate uh, you being here on the show. And I never imagined this day will come because I used to just listen to your, your podcast with uh, Dave every day, even while I'm on board at the sea, when I was just you know starting investing. And now I am having this conversation with you it's it, in my own show it's it's still i feel like kind of surreal so again i appreciate it <laughs> yeah podcasting is pretty awesome you know you get an opportunity to meet a lot of cool people hear a lot of cool ideas and i've i've been exactly where you were so i know how exciting it is and hopefully we can give people some good takeaways today yeah as i said before to you before we started the show it's a it's uh, having this podcast is kind of my excuse to talk to people smarter than me. So, <laughs> right. Yeah, say, uh, same with me. That's why I have a show too. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, uh, to, to kick off, you know, the episode, the conversation, I want to start with asking a, a curious question. What investing book are you reading now? You know, what, what preoccupies you? Mm, that is a very good question. So... I like to balance between um, reading physical books and listening to audiobooks. So I'm kind of a really old fashioned where I like to have paper books. You know what I mean? Like I don't like reading on an iPad if I can handle it. So I'm usually deep in like two, three, four books at a time. I, I, yeah, I know it's, it's kind of weird. It's, it's, uh, I'm, I'm not reading things um, in orderly fashion. I heard um, on YouTube recently, there's this guy named Naval, and he basically, he's like a huge influencer in, I think it's crypto, and he's just kind of like a thought leader. He has a huge uh, Twitter following, and he's just like a really, really smart dude. And he said how when he was growing up, um, his mom basically had him in the library for daycare. 
basically sh- she told him that hey you know we don't live in the greatest area <laughs> so to keep you safe you go to the library after school and i will pick you up from the library so he's talking about this in his youtube video and he said he basically read pretty much every book in the library and he said he recommends going into books and just kind of taking parts that you find interesting and then once you've taken what you feel like you need from the book leave the book and move on to something else i thought that's kind of like a really interesting idea but i kind of have been moving in that way because i guess when you start reading enough of these books they all start to sound the same <laughs> um so that all said um i i i do think so one more thing and then i'll, I'll answer, actually answer your question uh the <laughs> The uh, the other thing I've heard, this is a guy named Shane Parrish, and he has a great blog called Farnham Street. Also talks about investing. He talks about Warren Buffett. He says, um, if you're reading a book and you're struggling to get through it, like it's just you're fine, you're reading the same sentences over and over, you just feel stuck, you're not excited to open the book. He says, quit the book and just move on to a new book. And when I did that, I found it a lot more. I ended up reading a lot more, getting more information out, and being excited every time I would read. And so I would tell people if if you're looking to read and learn more about investing, take those tips because there's so many books out there, and there's just so much good information. And just you could never read all of the books that are out there. Like that was something Naval said was like. I realize that there's more books coming in than you could ever read in your entire lifetime. So just try to find the ones that you're interested in. Don't even waste time on ones that aren't even that good. So with that in um, context, I will say two books that I've been listening to recently on Audible, because I love listening to audiobooks while I'm walking or, or doing whatever. Um, a book called The Art of Value Investing, which was um, co-authored so i don't know who the other author was but i know whitney tilson was one of the authors on that book and what they did was they basically took quotes from all these great investors um people who have run successful hedge funds warren buffett all these big names and they compiled all these quotes with all these different ideas about all aspects of investing how to manage a portfolio how to think about the stock market so that's hmm. that's actually the second time I've gone through the book, and I remember reading it back in 2017. We're recording this now in 2022, and I'm finding new <laughs> insights from the second time reading that book. That kind of shows you. Uh, so, what's your f- favorite quote so far? What's your favorite quote in the book? Favorite quote. You've been reading it hmm. again. Yeah, so far. I mean, the latest. Yeah. So, <clears throat> so one that really stuck out to me, and I feel like. It stuck out because I think it could be so relevant today. And I don't remember who did the quote, but he basically said that one of the mistakes that investors made in the 2008-2009 financial crisis was they saw the stocks that were high flyers. And then as it started to crash, people just bought the dip. So it's like, okay, if if this bank stock's down 25%, I'm going to buy the dip because um, it, it sounds like a good deal, or you know, maybe this home builder is down thirty percent. So maybe I'll buy a stock thinking I'm getting a good deal because the stocks crashed so much lower. 
But what people didn't realize is that there were fundamental changes within those businesses that you shouldn't just blindly buy the dip because if you're not thinking about why these stocks are lower, you could be buying into a bad situation. And so, for example, with the banks, during the 2000s, they had huge profits. Now, because of the financial crisis, the regulators came in and really put a clamp down on a lot of the things that banks could do. So their their, um, profits in the next 10 years after the financial crisis were not as high as the previous 10 years. So you had a, a a fundamentally different environment. And it was similar with the home builders too. They crashed 30% and then continued to crash another 50, 60, 70. And I, I mean, I remember looking at the chart and it was one of the home builders, Pulte Group, went from one of the best stocks in the S&P to one of the worst. And it 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 would fall and then fall and then fall and you had compounding losses. So when I look at the landscape today, you know, we're recording this July 2022, We've seen a lot of stocks come down, and the wide range of those drawdowns has been huge. We've had stocks go down 20, 25%, and then you have other growth stocks that are down 80, 90%. So, where I try to look at, okay, what has fundamentally changed for this coming decade? Are there stocks that are crashing? And instead of trying to buy the dip on those, should I be thinking of, how the environment has changed. And so that's, I think, a different way to approach all of the market turbulence we've seen lately. And so that's something that's been on my mind and I'm trying to kind of process that, like how have things changed? How can I use that to make better investments moving forward? Yeah, that's actually, that's one of, I think one of the hardest, you know, challenges in investing because it's not often times that, you know, market are irrational. I mean, if, if the stocks, the stock is going down, there should be some reason, actually. I mean, even if all the markets are, you know, if you can reason out that, yeah, it, all the market is, the whole market is going down. But in a sense, there should be like, you know, I mean, it should be affected also in, a, in some fundamental way. And I think that's also the, the challenge because when you're so in love with the stock, you know, because you've researched it so hard, you become kind of blinded, like you kind of overestimate how can they fall. So yeah, I'm also thinking hard, actually, like what you've said. <laughs> it is it's a challenge. It is very tough. Yeah. I had a stock I did that on recently and I just had to I had to cut bait, even though I'd spent a bunch of time on the company because things changed and I I had to admit that that was the case and you have to do that. But uh, yeah, I, I want to you know move on to another because if if I know we can just talk more and more <laughs> on this on this kind of topic, but I want to know you know I I know you shared this on other podcasts, but I want to also hear it for for my listeners. Um, can you share your you know your journey as to why you started investing? I mean, I mean, when was the moment you knew investing? And investing in individual businesses for you, given all the rage and data against active investors this uh, past years? Yeah, that's a great question. So I guess I don't have the traditional finance background. So I really came at it with kind of a fresh set of eyes, I guess. 
Um, and I, I looked around and there wasn't really anybody teaching about getting started as a beginner in the stock market. So I felt like I had to teach a lot of this stuff myself. That was back in 2012, by the way. Things have definitely changed nowadays. So I kind of just bought my first stock and then just tried to absorb things as I went on and then started reading books. And um, Benjamin Graham, The Intelligent Investor, was a book that was very influential to me at the very beginning. And then I just kind of progressed from there. And it's 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 interesting because the more I learn about investing, the more you realize how complicated and how many different opinions there are on so many of these tough, tough questions. But there there are definitely questions to ask because as an investor, what are your options, right? You could try to do it yourself, which is the path I've taken for the last decade. You could pay somebody else to do it for you, or you could take a very passive, no effort approach and do index funds. And people have found success in each of those options. So the question becomes, what option is the best for me? And when I when you when you start to learn more about the financial industry, you start to see areas where things don't make sense. You know what I mean? Like if I go to a doctor and they give, you know, they're going to tell me what's wrong with me. I'm going to pay them money for that. Um, When you talk about somebody managing your money, you you have people who take a percent of your wealth and then do something like underperform the market. So it's like I'm, you could be paying thousands of dollars to somebody to essentially give you results that are worse than if you had just taken that passive approach that we're saying, where you just buy an index fund and let it sit. So for me, the biggest motivation has always been how can somebody who doesn't have a lot of money basically work towards financial freedom and ha- and get to a point where they have a lot of money. And that was a function of, I think, coming out of a place where I didn't have a lot when I started my career. And I didn't start in, in the financial services. I started as an engineer. But even as an engineer, I, f- I found it very difficult to save and invest because I was in Southern California in Orange County born and raised and that's California by the way for for global listeners it, it was it was it's one of the more ex, mo, most expensive areas for real estate in the country so rent expenses were very high they are still very high for the average person so I was discouraged by that but I found motivation for myself by figuring out how to invest just a little bit and let that grow over a long period. So that's that's where I I started my newsletter which basically kind of like I'm a fiduciary, I'm managing money for other people without actually touching their money. I'm I'm picking stocks every month and telling people what stocks I'm picking. And so for me 
the most motivating thing to get me to invest money has always been, you know, can I see this bright future for myself? And can I see these businesses that I invest in and experience that as I'm living my life? So as an example, I've, I have Target as one of my companies. When I go inside a Target, I can see that it's tangible to me. I can see that there's customers in the store. I can hear the beeping of, of the cash registers. I know that there's money coming in. And then I see the dividend checks every three months come into my brokerage account. Same thing with Apple. You know, uh, I re- very recently finally bought Apple stock. I- I've been I've been part of the iPhone ecosystem for years, and, and I don't see myself leaving. I see my nine year old daughter get immersed in the Apple ecosystem and, and just see how powerful that is. So these these each of these individual stocks is really a tangible motivation, and that's exactly how it started. Was I can tangibly see that this is how I'm going to use investing to build wealth. And so I, because of all the work and passion I have towards this, I certainly believe that I can manage people's money, you know, manage in quotes where I I can lead a portfolio to beat the market it may or may not happen, but if I can get enough people to get to a place of financial freedom, get motivated, get saving, and get investing, then in my mind, I've done a, a fantastic service, regardless of how the portfolio does against the market. Um, you're going to have periods where you underperform. You're going to have periods where you outperform. When I look at somebody like Warren Buffett, and and I emulate somebody like him and other investors who have beaten the market, done better than the market. You just try to take as many of those lessons as you can from them and then apply those to your own investing strategy. So you're not just shooting in the dark to say, I think I know better than everybody else. You take after those lessons of those great investors, you apply them to your own investing but then after that, it's out of your control. I mean, these businesses are going to do what they do. So I think as an investor, there needs to be some part of all of that. And you learn whether it fits your personality or not. And I found enough people who listen to the show who 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 think in the same way I do. And so it's it's been a, a great, a great journey for sure. Yes, um, that's a really. I, I did not expect that answer to be so noble, actually. <laughs> oh, thanks. But yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I want to kind of because you're been, you've been talking about Apple and Target and such. I want to transition. I mean, this is a good transition, actually, because I, I want to kind of dig deeper into your investing framework. I mean, what makes a a business and in, investable for you? I mean, what are what the green flags are you you're looking for? That's another fantastic question. So you obviously don't want to make it just one thing, but if I were to generalize and try to make it simple, you want a business that's growing. Surprisingly enough, like there's actually a lot of big businesses that I'll, that people will invest in that aren't even growing. Like I want to see that the money that Target brought in or Domino's Pizza is another good example. I want to see that they're selling more pizzas or they're making 
they're raising the price on their pizzas. They're bringing in more money every year. So that's that's like foundation number one. Businesses won't do that every single year, but over a longer time frame, they should be growing, growing their sales because you grow your sales. That's how you grow your profits. So let's look for businesses that are bringing in enough money into the business. That's kind of first and foremost. The next thing I want to look for is once they bring money in, are they turning a profit from that? Because you could spend a lot of money to bring in money, but if you're spending more than you're bringing in, you're not making a profit. And at the end of the day, what makes a good business is the fact that they can create a profit. And then the third piece of that is once they have the profits, you want them to distribute it back to the people who own the company, the shareholders. So my personal preference ever since I started the newsletter is I always want to buy a stock that pays a dividend because that's, again, a tangible example of the companies making a profit. They're giving it back to the shareholders and I'm able to use that to compound, build a wealth snowball and I get that snowball Yeah, you're effect. the drip king as, uh, <laughs> as Dave is saying. Dave says it, yeah. It's funny, yes. he bought me a t-shirt that says drip king, but... <laughs> <laughs> So far, I mean, I kind of want to interject because I, I kind of um, heard that from one of your podcast episode uh, because you haven't really delved so much as to why you own, you know, Berkshire Hathaway stock when it doesn't give any, you know, dividends. Yeah. Um, so for the Berkshire, I have one share, and that's because I've gone to their annual meeting in Omaha. And so in order to go... The A share. No, I don't have the A share. (laughs) I would like to have the A share. I would have liked to have the A share 40 years ago, right? So (laughs) (laughs) I have one B share. It allows me to get into the annual meeting for free. Um, When it comes to like my retirement portfolio, which is the same portfolio as my newsletter, um, I've never recommended Berkshire and it's not a significant part of my overall net worth. It's just one share I have. So I can go watch the investing superstars, Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger. And I got to see them in person at least once. And so that's been, that was a really cool experience. I recommend if any investing nerds that like get super into this stuff, you got to go to the meeting if you can. Cause it's, it's, yeah, like I, I would, I will. I would love to. I mean, I, I mean, I'm in the halfway through the world now, and it's you know as jet fuel prices are really skyrocketed now. It's, I know I don't know if it's kind of possible, and also it's kind of playing catch up. Also, before you know, Munger or Buffett goes into the other side. Right, <laughs> they're really old, really old guys. Yeah. Yeah. It may, it makes me think, man, I gotta go this year. I gotta go this year. You know, I don't want to yes. miss anything. You know what I mean? Yes. So just to you know um, summarize what you said on Berkshire, you just bought it just to go into the annual meeting, but you don't kind of own it for your portfolio. Correct. Yeah, and just gonna make sure because I, a part of my portfolio actually is heavy on Berkshire, so <laughs> just uh, asking for myself. And anyway, I, I want to also ask, um, 
how are you investing in in this time so you know high inflation uh, how how are you approaching it like this coming past months yeah it's it's a great question and i think it's on a lot of people's minds lately because they worry about a lot of businesses and a lot of the stocks in their own portfolio inflation's going to hit every company a little bit differently and so Speaking of Warren Buffett, he said it best where these companies that are more efficient, they have higher returns on their capital, they're able to weather inflation better. And so to give an example, if I am a energy company, maybe I have drilling that that we're doing, right? As an example, as inflation makes its way into the economy, all of those pieces of equipment become more and more expensive. And so an oil company, as an example, might make a lot of profits as gas prices go up, but they're also having to put in more and more um, capital like to make new, new, new drilling rigs and, and things like that, the, the machinery that goes into helping them extract all of the natural resources out. So that makes it tough for those type of businesses. Um, Buffett's used the example of Seize Candies uh, as a business that did very well during inflation because they don't need these huge oil rigs. They actually, um, they're very simple. It's it's a chocolate business. They have a few stores and they're able to raise their prices because customers love their product and they don't have to make these super expensive investments to continue to grow sales. So Investing in more capital efficient businesses is one way to beat inflation. It's a great way to beat inflation. A lot of, I would say, a vast majority of the stocks in my portfolio are in that capital efficient category where they're able to take, I mean, it might not be as great as like a C's candy, but they're able to take small amounts of capital and make big profits from them. I think if I were to look at the best example of that, it's actually Apple. I uh, did a did a a calculation. So, like the thing about Apple, they have so much cash and securities on their balance sheet that it actually makes them look less efficient than they really are. But if you were to take that cash away, they have one of the highest returns on capital that you'll see in in the stock market. So you think about the way their business model is, and it makes a lot of sense. I mean. They designed the iPhone, which a lot of that can be done on the computer, right? Or um, for the physical models. It's if they're designing it, but they're not manufacturing it, that makes that takes a lot of the capital strain away from that company. Not only that, but the the chips that go into their phones, they don't have to manufacture that either. They outsource that. They only design the the um, the chips themselves. And then you look at the way they sell they sell the 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 iPhone, and it's like these cell carriers here in the United States are giving away iPhones because they want you to join, whether it's T-Mobile or Verizon. So it's like they want you to get iPhones. The people who are in the ecosystem they love their iPhones, and then every year you have like thousands of developers who are developing new apps to go in the iPhone and go on the Android phones. So you have like almost like an army of developers working 
to give you a reason to upgrade your iPhone every year because you want to stay on top yeah. and be able to download the, all it, the next it, apps. It's, it's so sticky, actually. It, it's, it's a really sticky business. Sticky. And so <laughs> yeah. think about if they're not having to pay for developers, they don't need much labor, they don't have much manufacturing, and they're able to increase their prices as as the customers have more money to, to throw around. You really get you really don't see them get hindered by inflation as much as you would some other companies. Now, of course, I think everybody wants to freak out because they say, well, because of inflation, the customer is going to have less money to spend. And that makes sense. And then maybe Apple sales come down a little bit from that. But over the life of, of the economy, for the many decades we've seen the economy, the economy is always growing. It's always improving. It's always, it's always innovating. These these struggles like inflation are really temporary in nature, and I just don't see inflation being a problem. Let's say ten years from now, it's it's just something that kind of needs to work its way through the system. People forget inflation means an economy is running hot. So it means it's like there's a lot of money going around. It's 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 the economy is booming. And so yes, yes, that needs to come down and, and there might be a recession that comes from that, but it's just the natural ebb and flow, the 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 waves of the economy, if you will. Um, there's gonna be highs, there's gonna be lows, and it's just part of the cycle. So as an investor, you can't you can't get scared if Apple stock goes down ten percent. Especially if it's already trading at a great price, that actually might be a great opportunity because while all the investors are concerned about, oh no, you know, customers are going to be squeezed, so they're not going to be as many iPhones sold next year. I don't really care about next year. I want to see what about ten years from now. And so, as the rest of the economy navigates over inflation, so will consumers, and then that will lead them back to buy more iPhones and. And you get the same natural cycle. Inflation is nothing new. It's always been around. People just need to relax and zoom out and take a longer, yeah. longer term approach. And also, I want to kind of insert on the iPhones. You know, I mean, iPhones are really durable uh, equipment. It's it it doesn't it takes a lot of years before it kind of worn out. I, I'm looking at my iPhone eight now. It's already almost five years, and it's still running okay. I mean. If if the sales of Apple, of course, if, if inflation runs hot, uh, it takes many years for other people to buy. But still, they have this uh, customers still on, you know, in, in the long run. So, it, yeah, I hope I'm you know getting across my point. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a lot easier to sell to customers when they're really happy and they love your product. It's super easy to sell to them. So it's a nice effortless way for the company to grow and not have to put you know they don't have to spend billions and billions and billions of dollars to just try to attract customers they can just keep the ones that they have and keep them happy yes and uh, i have another you know question i'm because i haven't heard you share it in your podcast um can you share you know the time when an investment of yours failed i mean success stories are easy to share but failures are kind of not so how do you deal when an investment you did a lot of research you know failed ultimately yeah it's a it's another great question and i'll I'll go back to i kind of hinted at it 
beginning of the interview, but I had this company called Griffin and they, they basically sell tools. And so um, think of like gardening tools, um, the, the, the gardening tools that are all related to gardening. They sell a lot of those and then they, they have other businesses too, but they basically were very positioned very well to make a lot of money from all of the crazy residential real estate boom we saw directly after the pandemic. I mean, at that time, the only places that people were going to was uh, like Home Depot and Lowe's because people were locked up, they were stuck at their homes. So you had this huge, crazy boom of profits for Home Depot and Lowe's and just a bunch of customers going there. And so it seemed to me that Griffin was positioned to be able to benefit from a lot of that. And I did a lot of work and and it was very it was very complex analysis too, right? Because they had a lot of debt, which I usually try to stay away from. But in this particular case, um, there were specific details where, okay, the debt's not due for a long time. So, you know, they have this runway to be able to pay some of that off and, and maybe make some smart moves. So it was it was a very intellectually stimulating investment to make. The problem is, is I felt as I watched the company progress over several quarters, is they were not profiting as much as they should have. And then to make matters worse, they took it was something like seven or eight years of free cash flows and went and made an acquisition of another, they bought another business. So I kind of looked at Griffin as like, they didn't, they were kind of the opposite of Apple where they were not very capital efficient. And in my mind, maybe that was more of the, the other businesses they had decided to buy were not as efficient. And so their track record wasn't that great, but I was willing to overlook that because I was excited about the residential real estate boom and all of the great things that could happen from that. So once I saw the acquisition and then shareholders got really, really upset, you had um, an activist shareholder. I don't know if you ever talk about activism in, in your podcast, but somebody came in, he made a huge, a huge drama over what's going on in the company. He wanted the CEO to be ousted. So really what the tipping point was for me was when they made that acquisition. And looking back, I should have kind of, because I did a lot of research, I should have been able to see that, you know what, their track record's never been great when it came to making acquisitions. So that should have clued me in like, these guys maybe aren't as good as they should be at managing investor capital. So sure enough, they make another huge acquisition. So I eventually sold it. I did sell it at a profit, but when I compared the profit compared to if I had just put it in the S&P 500, it underperformed by quite a bit because there were a lot of shareholders like me that were not happy about the acquisition. So that was definitely a mistake. And it it, it taught me that you really, really got to... It's easier to find managements that already have that great track record those high returns on capital, they sh- if they have that in place, I think it makes it easier to say that that should continue. And if they don't have that in place, I got to be less excited about, oh, maybe they're going to 
profit from whatever trend and instead think about do I trust the management to make good decisions? Because really in the long term, the residential real estate boom is really exciting. I, th- I think it's a great long-term trend, but mm. a lot of times the management and the business model itself is much more important when you zoom out five or 10 years. And so I should have recognized that this isn't the greatest business model. They're not great historically at making a efficient return on their capital. Don't be surprised if if they make another blunder in the future. So that was definitely a, a painful mm-hmm. and recent mistake. So just to walk back about what you said on, on management. So uh, looking back now, like with uh, Griffin, what 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 are you looking now at? What quality of management do you want for your investments? Yeah, it's it's tough because um, you can't you can put numbers to it, but at the same time, there's there's almost like that that qualitative aspect. An art. <laughs> it is very much an art, and so it for every company, I feel like it's going to depend. I think a track record is a great place to start. So it's like okay. What have they done with the business in the time that they've been there? And you don't want to attribute past CEOs to to current CEOs. Let them have a clean slate. Give them the benefit of the doubt. But when you see those warning flags, such as <laughs> being at the company for 10 years and having really bad returns on on capital. So ROIC, I don't know if you've, if you've talked about that metric before. I, I like looking at that as a starting point. I also like looking and listening to them on earnings calls. Like, do I feel that they sound like they're going to be stewards of the capital? And then what have they done in the past to prove that they are thinking of the employees, the customers, and the shareholders? Mm -hmm. And those three are all important because if you don't take care of one of those, it's not going to be great for your stock price. So you got to take care of all three. I'll give you an example of one I really liked recently. So there's a company called Dick's Sporting Goods. They sell, people think of them as like the sporting goods store, but a big portion of their business nowadays is golf equipment. They have Golf Galaxy inside these stores. And it's really an attractive business because a lot of millennials these days have entered golf. Um, Part of that was the pandemic, and part of it's these new concepts called Top Golf and Drive Shack that are kind of like bowling alleys for golf. And it's getting a lot of people who mm-hmm. never play golf into looking into golf. And so, the more people, once you're like in golf and you consider yourself a golfer, well, you got to buy gloves every year, you got to buy tees every year, you got to buy golf balls every year, you got to buy golf shoes, right? Not to mention the expensive clubs. So, there's great long-term tailwinds for that business that I think are being overlooked. But what I really liked about the management for Dick's Sporting Goods was that she had been the CEO's right-hand woman for years. And some, it was maybe five or 10 years ago, There, you had some tragedies um, and I'm not going to make this political, but there were tragedies having to do with assault rifles. And, you know, unfortunately, children lost their lives because of these this these crazy guys who were 
who are buying um, assault rifles and, and going into these schools. At the time, Dix made a really tough decision to not sell assault rifles at their stores because they didn't want to be part of that, even if it wasn't their fault. Just the idea that that they could be contributing to something like that really, really um, compelled them to to just look at the 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 impact on the community more than our profits. And so it wasn't so much that particular decision that made me like management, but it was the fact that they have that mindset of I care about employees, customers, shareholders, and I care about the community, and I'm willing to sacrifice profits if it's better for the community um, and <clears throat> and done in a responsible way. It wasn't like they were completely destroying the business. It was a small part of their business. And mm-hmm. when you read one of the books by um, one of the CEOs for, for Dix, he talked about how the current CEO now, she was part of that decision-making committee that made the tough decision to say, look, we need to, we need to change this because this is really uh, a tragedy. So that was something I really liked about that particular CEO is I feel like she's shown a track record of being able to make tough decisions that in the end, I believe that was a good thing for that company because really it's sports and golf. It's, they really focus now on selling to athletes and it really just even from a business sense, didn't make much sense to have those two combined. So in the Mm -hmm. process of kind of getting away from the hunting niche and focusing more on their core competency athletes, um, they were able to kind of do all of that in a very tough way and be able to stand up to potential criticism. So I liked that. And that's just one example of something where I feel like I can trust that CEO to take any profits that they make and make sure that they're going to do good things with it. And as a shareholder, that's going to reward me over the long term. It's it's kind of an, an example of a CEO with, you know, good, good ethics, you mm-hmm. know, integrity. In mm. I, I just want to walk back also, like, because you mentioned ROIC, I actually haven't, you know, talked about it in my podcast, but I'm actually planning in the future. But for for the my listeners, you know, can you um, expound a bit on what is ROIC and why you think it's one of the best uh, uh, in checking management? Also, yeah, ROIC stands for Return on Invested Capital, and you can shorten it to Return on Capital. But it's that same idea we talked about with Apple. You know, how much do they have to invest? How much of my money? Because I'm a shareholder, I'm part owner of this business. How much of my capital do they have to invest to make a profit? The higher the ROIC, the less capital they have to invest to grow and make profits. So uh, I'm blanking on the name. Um, I, I do that a lot too. It's I wish I had more storage in my brain to to remember everybody's name. Yeah. So Todd Todd Wenning, he was on our show and he had a great example on ROIC. If you think of it kind of like a printer, um, if you put $100 into a printer and you get $110 back, that's a 10% ROIC. So Mm. you look for companies that have higher ROICs because they're able to take the capital that you invest, the money you're putting into the printer, and they're able to 
create higher levels of growth from that. It's uh, it's just simply returns what you. I mean, it's like the same with stocks. Looking at stocks, you also check how much cash flow you'll receive in the future. So, but in in this case, it's the equity. You know how much you invested into the inv- into the business itself. Right. That's yeah. That's because uh, management's number one priority, their number one responsibility, is capital allocation, and so there's a lot of nuance to that, but. If they're able to do that and put capital in the right places, it's going to do really great things for companies, um, for the shareholders over the long term. Kind of, it it just went into my mind right now. But um, how do you think? What do you think about this? You know, um, this management being how 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 the management is being compensated. You know, this uh, stock base compensation. What do you think about that? I think, I mean, I don't think it's good or evil. I think it is a tool and I think it's a great tool for companies to be able to pay talent and attract talent and retain talent. But I definitely think it can be abused and I have seen it be abused a lot. <laughs> um, yeah. So companies just have to do it responsibly because if they're giving away, if they're doing too much stock based compensation, which means they're giving away too many stock options to their employees. They're basically taking money from the shareholders and giving it to employees. And we go back to that 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 pillar or the the tripod, if you will, of customers, employees, and shareholders. Mm-hmm. In that case, you're sacrificing the shareholders. And that's not good for you if you buy that stock over the long term. Uh Dave and I have looked at some financials of some companies. Um, you look at a company like Block and you see how much stock-based compensation they have and you're you're just wondering how yeah. how is there going to be anything left for shareholders? You're you're distributing so much of the company away. We will see what happens, but it's it's times of market turbulence where you start to see that mm-hmm. stuff unravel. And so we'll yeah. we'll see how it plays out, but it's if you look at a group of companies and there's companies that are abusing stock-based compensation. Th- those group in general will not do good as as um as a, a group of investments. Yeah, and also it's because it's kind of also mis misleading on on the financial statement because it's it's declared on the cash flow and it's not being deducted on on it's being added back on the cash flow. So it, it's even if they show like really great net income, I mean, and it also you know, uh, free cash flow. But if you deduct their their stock based compensation, it's it's really it's crazy. I mean, you, you said with block, it's yeah. I mean, <laughs> Dave, Dave, my my co host, my podcast co host, Dave. He he said he likes to think of it as a future indicator of dilution. So it, mm-hmm. it's likely it will probably show up in the income statement eventually. You just won't see it now and so yeah exactly to your point it could make things look better than they actually are if you don't know how to account for them yeah um i want to transition in another question if you if you don't mind i mean i i I don't know if if this one was being asked to you i actually really curious um what is your worst investment bias (laughs) (laughs) i mean for context on the listen on the listeners um, investment biases are 
human behaviors or assumptions that are irrational in nature, which can lead to bad long-term financial decisions. So, so Andrew, what's your worst <laughs> investment bias and how are you dealing with it? I love that question. I have to think about <laughs> it for a second. <laughs> I think I still struggle with the anchoring bias, which is to give background, it's basically you look at where a stock price was and you get anchored to that thinking that that makes its value. So for example, if a stock goes to 200 and now it's at 150, you you might think that that's a great value because it's down $50, but it could still be super expensive um because what it's what a stock has done in the past says nothing about what it's going to do in the future like yeah. um but investors get anchored to that bias and so we think that oh one day it'll return to 200 so i catch myself when i'm trying you know i have like a a process when i'm going to try to find stocks to buy every month and so i'll usually start by looking at huge lists of companies try to narrow it down and then then do the deep work once i have a narrowed list and i i find myself a little too excited when i see a stock's down like 50% or something when i totally should not be so i i do use valuation models like um i, I use a dcf model and that helps mm-hmm. mitigate that bias a lot because um it will give you an end value based on where the va- where the company truly is probably valued based on its cash flows and it, a dcf does not look at where has a stock been if if you're applying mm-hmm. it, it, it if you're applying it accurately but um i shouldn't say accurately if you're applying it reasonably um that's a discussion for another time but i definitely struggle <laughs> with that i also feel like i i struggle with confirmation bias and i think everybody does even when you're trying not to let that affect you. So confirmation bias is basically if I am bullish on Apple and I think Apple is such a great company, anytime I see, if I were to see two news articles, one is bullish on Apple, one's bearish on Apple, I'm going to think that the bullish article is more uh, accurate than the, <laughs> than the bearish article. So that's one I think is a constant struggle. And I think the best way to try to mitigate that one is you just got to look at the facts and you got to look at mm-hmm. what are the official numbers and how are they changing from year to year and putting more emphasis on that and less on how do I feel about a company? Cause it's so easy to get excited about some of these businesses. Actually, you're not alone on that. I mean, I, I think those biases, like what you mentioned, like the anchoring and the confirmation bias are like the most common and, Maybe I, I also think that super investors are also s- still struggling with, maybe except Charlie Munger. I mean, <laughs> it's on a different plane of, <laughs> of, uh, but yeah, it's, it's hard in the, in a sense that sometimes you don't really notice it. Actually, if you're doing your normal research process, it's sometimes it just creeps into your subconscious. And I, I'm also actually, that's one of my, um, worse bias actually the, the anchoring i mean i always before i always look at the charts i mean i still do but it's not as before that i was kind of 
really immersed into the charts. I, I mean, I, I open, I have two screens, and 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 it opens different <laughs> different uh, for a time frequency. Uh, it's crazy, actually. And I kind of realized that you know I'm 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 studying business, not not the price momentum. Right. So yeah, it's it's also hard to really uh, shed off those kind. And for me, also one one of the worst is it's kind of a confirmation bias, but it's the social proof. You know, mm-hmm. if if one of your favorite you know investors buys the stock, and especially if you own it already, it's 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 like <laughs> it's like a different level of confirmation bias it's it's like a social proof and it's uh, quite hard actually uh, the one example that i could uh, think of is with uh, alibaba you know i mean charlie munger is really heavy on it before i i don't own it uh, fortunately but uh, it's one of those that i can see on on twitter also like people like all heavy on alibaba and such but yeah, it's it's really nice for for you to be so honest on <laughs> on speaking on those. <laughs> yeah, it's it's not easy actually. It's it's because it's kind of like um your the weakness in, in an yeah. investor. So I, now I want to kind of ask like, how do you do your portfolio? You know, allocation it, because you have, of course, you're you're not. I I mean, I want to assume that you're not equally sizing all your bets you know so you have different weightings on every stock you own so i mean how do you so how do you size your bets on your portfolio i the way i look at it and my thinking on this has evolved over time the longer i've done this the more i've started to realize that the chances are higher that I'm wrong, then I am right. And what I mean by that is if I think a stock is cheap, right? But the market knows why it's cheap, there's a higher chance that I'm missing something than the fact that the market's wrong. And so you have to do a lot of work in order to figure out why you're actually right and the market's wrong. So, you know, I might have, so what What I'm, if I have like five ideas on why a stock's cheap, maybe three or four of those um, already baked into the price. And then you got to have another reason why the market's actually missing something. So to have that kind of humility and, and really be able to have high conviction on your stock picks, I think it takes a lot of work and and there's, I think there's a higher chance of being wrong than I first thought when I first started out. And so that's not to say that you can't find success in the market. It's just to say that you have to take precautions, almost like you're putting up guardrails to go back to bowling. You got to put up guardrails to protect yourself in case you're wrong or in case you miss something or in case the world changes on a dime and You've got to have a portfolio that's able to react to that. So in the past, I used to really have high, high conviction bets where I would say, I know about this company. like I know it's cheap and I know why it's cheap. And so I would put you know, 10, 15, 20, 25% of my portfolio into a single stock without blinking. And I realize now that that's, that's probably not what I should have done. And instead, put faith in the process rather than any individual name. 
And so now mm. I try to keep things a lot more spread out. Like I would say the last, in the last two years, I've tried to keep, if I'm going, if I have more money to allocate in any given month, I'm trying to split that up. So when I start a position, it's not more than 5% of my portfolio. I can add to that in the future, but I prefer to let some time pass and really think more about the decision I'm making rather than just piling in and having a quarter of your portfolio in a single name. And so that really puts these guardrails up where you don't need to be right as much because, I mean, even if you're, let's say you are 75% right on a stock. But if you're if that 25% that you're wrong was on a company that's 25 or 30% of your portfolio, it's going to be really really hard to come back from that. Whereas if you're 75% right and your portfolio is evenly spaced, it's you don't have to be right nearly as much. So I don't know if that makes sense, but basically I try to put guardrails up now to allow for mistakes, allow for errors, allow for things to change. And so over the long term it, that diversification helps to m- minimize huge losses and huge underperformance that's hard to come back from. So it's, I mean, because you're you're spreading out so much, or not so much, but I mean, you're spreading out your bets. Isn't it also you're like sacrificing, you know, returns also in a way? I think that's I think that's a common misconception, and I. Th- I totally thought that way when I first started investing because all of the big investors kind of say that. But if if you there's been new research that's come out in the last few years where they have shown that historically a big chunk of market returns can be driven by one, two, three, four, five names. I think the best example of that was Leading up to twenty, the end of twenty twenty one, Facebook, Amazon, Apple, Microsoft, Netflix, and Google—those huge names really drove a lot of the performance of the market. And so, the best way I like to describe it or kind of explain it is: if you, I, if you, me, and three of our listeners were in a room, and let's say Elon Musk was also in there. Our average height might be somewhere around five nine or you know the average height, but our average net worth would probably be in the billion right at least hundreds of millions because Elon's wealth drives up that average so much. You take Elon mm-hmm. out and all of a sudden our our net worth comes down to a much more reasonable level. But if you took Elon Musk out and we were measuring height, it doesn't really. Because the numbers aren't so spaced out, it doesn't do much to the average height. And so I think that's something that investors don't put enough thought into because if we take the idea that a stock really has, in theory, it has unlimited upside. But basically, if a business turns into like a Coca-Cola where it's just like, it's destroying the market average, right? It's compounding two times or three times the market average, that can drive a huge part of your portfolio's returns just from a single pick. So if you have more stock picks in your portfolio, 
it's more of a chance to put the Elon Musk into the room because there's a better chance of that huge number of return driving up the, mm-hmm. the performance of the portfolio. Now, obviously, when you get to like hundreds of stocks or thousands of stocks, that definitely changes because now we're talking about a much wider uh, dispersion in in the number of of stocks. Mm-hmm. But I'm really talking about instead of thinking the 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 standard recommendation these days is 15 to 20 stocks. I think if for me personally, pushing that to 30 stocks, maybe 40 stocks, maybe even 50 stocks one day. It's still a, a relatively small amount of stocks that have a chance of being one of those huge, huge outperformers. And I just, I like those odds better. And so, one last thing before I, you know, finish beating this dead horse the, <laughs> the studies that always said, hey, um, if you have a portfolio of 15 to 20 stocks, that gives you basically the way the study was written. They said a portfolio of 15 to 20 stocks gives you the same diversification as buying the index. Um, and any more stocks on top of that doesn't really change much to the diversification or the the risk is what they called it. But when they were measuring risk, they were measuring beta, which is basically the volatility mm. of a stock. So what they were saying yeah. was a portfolio of 15 to 20 stocks will have the same volatility as the S&P 500. Have, adding more 25, 30 does not help. It only makes it the same amount of risk if you measure it by volatility. But I'm really looking at... Um, risk from a losing money standpoint. And so to me, I don't care about the volatility. And so if I'm adding stocks to reduce risk of losing money, plus I'm giving more of a chance of one of those huge winners, I think that's a win-win in my viewpoint. And it's not really a popular point of view. Um, but the book Ten Bagger, uh, the book One Hundred Baggers by Christopher Mayer talked about that concept of of the a a few positions driving the returns of a portfolio over the long term, and I think that could be a good place to think about that kind of an idea. That was a really a really great um, um, answer, actually. I, um, it kind of reminded me also. Of- the Pabrai quote, like uh, heads I win and tails I don't lose much. If you have that kind of diversification, because you like like what you said, it's all you only need like one or two names or stocks to drive your returns. If even if you're like negative on five, if the other two is like ten thousand <laughs> percent, it it doesn't matter. So yeah, I kind of I kind of get what your point. It's really great. Thanks. So. Um, just I want to go to uh one last question before I because I've been taking so much of your time I'm <laughs> kind of apologize but because you have haven't also talked much about this but how do you handle your own personal finance? That's a great question and uh, this has been a ton of fun so I, I'm happy to spend time with you on the show. <laughs> Thank you. The 
I, I've always been like a numbers type person. And uh, the older I got, the spreadsheets. more spreadsheets. Yeah, spreadsheets and all of that. And the older <laughs> I've got, the more I realize it's not very common. Um, but I find my my spreadsheet nerds and we stick together, so it's all good. We we form that bond, <laughs> right? So I I I take I take um handling money very seriously. I feel that it's my responsibility to be a steward of what I've been given. And so in my mind, that means I'm thinking very carefully about where I put money. And so I don't do it perfectly and I don't do it probably as regularly as I should, but I do have a spreadsheet where I keep track of my personal finances. I do try to make decisions on where the money, where I want the money to go before I spend it. And so that that helps make sure that I'm allocating enough to the other areas of personal finances that are important to me. So whether that's um, giving to my local church, I tithe. I'm a I'm a Christian, so I tithe ten percent. Uh, whether that's giving to charities or nonprofits, whether that's investing um, money into the stock market so I can build my own personal wealth, whatever that looks like, I try to put that and outline it in a spreadsheet before I spend it so that, you know, I also leave like a margin. I think that's important too. Um, I, I think if you set up, if you, if you, I, I understand people who go down to like every dollar. I just, I can't do that because I always go over what I should spend. And so I, I try to leave a margin of safety on my finances and where I'm putting it so that I can move things around or not stress out if I go over what I thought I was going to do. And that's worked really well for me. It worked um, when I didn't have money. I mean, it didn't work as well because you know it's tough when you're first starting, but it worked then and, uh, and it works now. And and I really recommend it if, if, um, if you're the type of person who likes to dive into spreadsheets. I like how you you know, incorporated investing into your personal finance because you mentioned the margin of safety. So <laughs> yeah, that's a that's a good that's a good touch actually. Thanks. So um before I go to the you know, I, I have this question that I asked guests, you know, to end the show. Before I go to that, um can you promote your show or anything that you want for the listeners to connect with you? I appreciate that. Thank you. Yeah, our show we are a weekly podcast. We're about to move to two episodes a week so people can get more of our voices in their earbuds every week. <laughs> uh, investing, it's called the Investing for Beginners podcast, your path to financial freedom. And we do our best to keep things simple. And we're trying to get, to start to move towards more advanced topics too, uh, because I know there's a certain segment of our audience that that really enjoys those, but we we try to make it as simple as possible. We both, Dave and I, did not have any background in finance when we started. We've had to teach ourselves along the way, and that's been quite a journey because there's a lot to learn. Um, but I think it's a useful exercise as you think about personal finances, your money, investing, and wealth. That stays with you the rest of your life. So you know you don't have to figure it out tomorrow, but it's good to to have that solid foundation so you do know what you're doing because it could be expensive if you don't yes it's really expensive and also i also just to pitch your website also it's such a 
so much articles that really helpful for not only in investing but also in, in personal finances and accounting also <laughs> I've, I've read so much of in, in your website so yeah i will put all those uh, in the in the link in the show notes so i want to go to the last question i mean this is a question that i kind of rip off from the other podcast a popular podcast like from invest like the best with patrick o'shaughnessy and <laughs> the other ones but so the question is it's kind of cliche i'm just gonna kind of apologize but what is happiness for you i mean what what does happiness mean in your life hmm. such a broad question i know <laughs> yeah i think i think happiness is being okay with where i am regardless of the circumstances around me and I think a lot of that has to do with just having a positive outlook on the future, regardless of how dire things might seem at the time. Um, I think happiness is hard to have all the time. Um, but I think having, trying to find peace with wherever you are can sometimes lead to happiness. Yeah, that's uh that's great, actually. It's kind of bordering spirituality, actually. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that kind of happiness. Yeah, but uh, it's it has been really great, I, Andrew. I mean, you've been really generous in answering my questions. I really appreciate it, and I hope uh, you had also a good time <laughs> with this conversation. And uh, I hope I will be having you more in the future. I would love to. I, I really enjoyed that you weren't afraid to challenge some of my ideas and that made it really fun for me. So I thoroughly enjoyed it and I really appreciate you having me on. Mm -hmm.